Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness, as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we'll be talking about the impact of menopause on sexual health with Dr. Palin Batur, Professor of OBGYN and Reproductive Biology. She's in the Department of Subspecialty Women's Health at the Cleveland Clinic. She's the Deputy Editor of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. Please enjoy this podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us. We have Dr. Pellin Batur with us, and we're talking about the effect of menopause on sexual health. So thank you, Pellin, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. In the, the last podcast, we discussed biopsychosocial evaluation of hypoactive sexual desire disorder in premenopausal women. Do you start with a similar evaluation for postmenopausal women? And I did not get a chance to hear or listen to the last podcast yet. So I'm, the evaluation is going to be similar. Basically, when patients come in, I will always have them fill out a questionnaire that looks not just at their hormones, but all aspects, anything that impacts sexual health. So what's going on with their mood and their stressors and are they sleeping? So I'm guessing a lot of what you discussed at the podcast discussed looking at the big picture for women and not just focusing on what their hormones are doing. And also the one other difference between premenopausal and postmenopausal women, I do like to have some screening questions for prolactinoma because these women are no longer having menstrual cycles. So you cannot use that as a clue if they had issues with elevated prolactin that can also impact libido. So sometimes even if they're not having breast discharge or new headaches, I will throw the net out a little wider with just checking a thyroid and prolactin in these women. But I, those would be the major differences uh, pre versus postmenopause in my clinic. How does the, the lack of estrogen uh, affect desire and other causes of sexual dysfunction in postmenopausal women? Yeah, there are data to suggest that estrogen and progesterone and progestin um, may have a positive influence on sexual health, especially estrogen. Obviously, the people always think about testosterone, but in general, I find that women on estrogen just simply feel better, except for the small percentage of women who have a hard, hard time tolerating it. And even though the data for sexual benefits directly is pretty weak for when it comes to hormone therapy, it's there. But I think the bigger picture is that women sleep better and they feel better. And, you know, when their partner touches them, they're not overheating. And all of those things impacting quality of life may add to the uh, beneficial impacts of the hormone therapy postmenopausally. But you wouldn't call estrogen a treatment for sexual issues, would you? 
in some women, it surely is. So one thing I've learned in my career, I first came to the Cleveland Clinic in 1998, and I've learned to be more humble in Yes, we always want to focus evidence, practice evidence-based medicine, but, you know, there is no evidence until there is evidence. So for years, we were sure things were this way, and this is how we would counsel patient, and I would be very passionate about, oh, but this RCT in the New England Journal said this, and, and then, you know, you become a little embarrassed three years later when there's a landmark study showing something different, and everybody is different, so I don't think of it as uh, as us for estrogen, progestin treatment as a pro-sexual drug per se, but for many, many women, it can positively impact their sexual health. I, I think that when you talk with menopausal women, respectfully, they're older, and do you find a lot of times that the post, the past medical history, like uh, their medications and their chronic his, uh, disease history, will impact? their uh, sexual dysfunction? Of course. Yeah, that's why it's really important to look at the big picture. While the woman is filling out her questionnaire about all the different things that may be impacting her life, and my questionnaire has information about, are you still attracted to your partner? I mean, it doesn't say exactly, but you know, what's going on with your partner? Because many of their partners have issues with erections. And so you have to look at the whole picture. And in the meantime, I'm looking at their medication list, reviewing their history. Do they have a cardiac condition that may impact blood supply, for example, to the clitoris? Do they have diabetes? So we do have some data that using a uh, medication such as, you know, Viagra, Cialis to um, help with blood supply to the clitoris and genitalia may be helpful in women who have diabetes. So I am actually looking all other aspects of their medical health. This is where I feel like me having an internal medicine background comes in really handy. In addition to my women's health training, even though I work in gynecology, because really all these things can impact. But I also am a big believer in that mind-body connection. So if people come in set thinking that, oh, well, I have diabetes and I've read that diabetes impacts sexual health and there's nothing I can do about it, then there will be nothing that we can do about it if they have come in with that mindset. So my job is also to look at all aspects of their sexual health and not just their medications. You brought up the antidepressants, and I don't know if this has been discussed in your other podcasts yet, but for example, we do know antidepressants obviously can negatively impact libido and orgasm function. In fact, if you look, the odds ratio of any kind of sexual dysfunction in women using an antidepressant is about 1.5. However, does it make sense to take these women off their antidepressant? Not necessarily, because an untreated mood disorder has a higher odds ratio of uh, sexual dysfunction, about 1.9. So, Yes, they're older. Yes, they may be on different medications, but that doesn't mean that we are not going to have success with improving their sexual health. But I do want my patients to have realistic expectations. So I say, we may never get you back to, you know, your 20-year-old self when the first six months of when you met your partner. But the goal is to just move the needle and make things a little bit better. But, you know, this is not aiming for a Hollywood fake show, right? We are aiming for 
improved quality of life. Nobody's life is sex perfect every time. So setting realistic expectations is important, but not just saying, well, they're older, why bother? The truth is somewhere in the middle between those two concepts. Do you have any treatments for people who are on antidepressants? That's such a common problem, of course. And is there, is there, what do you do in that situation when they're on an antidepressant and you suspect there, that could be a problem. Yeah. So there are a few different options. First of all, some women have just been on these medications forever, right? And nobody's really tried to wean them off. So A, I have that conversation about, have you ever tried a lower dose? We sometimes use a Wellbutrin as an add-on therapy, bupropion, I'm sorry. And sometimes that can be helpful. And there are some antidepressants that can have a lesser impact on sexual health. And we can actually add those to the show notes afterwards if you want. Um, Some of these are the newer agents and, you know, it's more anecdotal that they have less less sexual impact. We don't have good head-to-head studies saying that, but I have in in clinic have seen a better response to, as opposed to some some of these newer agents, as opposed to something that's a pure SSRI, although insurance coverage may sometimes be an issue. And then also, you know, a lot of times if they say, no, I don't want to come off of this medication, that's where we may talk about adding testosterone, some of the medications that you have already talked about previously for premenopausal women, like phlebanserin, bremelantide, I do offer them to postmenopausal women as well. They do work. We do have um, evidence that it works at least for phlebanserin in postmenopausal women. Really, it's it's just shared decision-making with the patient about, okay, do you still feel like you need this? Do you want to try changing? the medication. People used to do weekend drug holidays. That approach isn't the most effective. And it also, you know, promotes non-adherence to a medication. But sometimes with shorter acting medications, you can consider it. I typically have not found that to be helpful in my practice and fought with more issues with uh, withdrawal. So I do not commonly do that. And there are some data, again, using medications such as, you know, Viagra for orgasmic dysfunction associated with uh, antidepressants. Although I do find that I have to counsel women about headaches and other side effects that they can uh, get with those medications which sometimes makes it more of a bummer for their weekend sexual getaway. Have you found great success with that? You know, people talk about that. I haven't. One of the blessings also with sexual health is that there is a high placebo rate with a lot of these products, close to a 50% placebo. And that's true for some of the hormone therapy regimens postmenopausally too. There could be up to a 40% placebo. So I, in my counseling, I try to power, you know, harness the powers of placebo with me again, not nocebo against me. And so it's all also about a patient believing that a product may work. And if they go into it with that mindset, I do, uh, I will counsel saying this doesn't help everybody, but boy, I have had a lot of patients who have found this to be really helpful. And this is something simple enough that we can try. And that's how I gauge my conversation, which is not a lie. And that way I think is much more helpful to the patient's experience. You know, you get through your evaluation and and you sit down for, for treatment options Tell us a little bit about, you know, when you get to that part of the discussion, um, how you open up things and, and where you go with the different options. 
typically, if a woman is not on estrogen progestin hormone therapy, I don't have a conversation about jumping to testosterone right away. It is an option. We do have data that even without the estrogen therapy, that the testosterone can be helpful. But oftentimes, they're getting a sexual health questionnaire as well as a menopausal history questionnaire. That's going to look at how are they sleeping? How is their mood? How is their vaginal health? How has their orgasm been after menopause? You know, are they having issues with climax? So it's going to give me the big picture on the patient. So if they're having a lot of menopausal symptoms as well, I will have the conversation about hormone therapy. I don't think you're expecting me to have the detailed conversation about postmenopausal hormone therapy, Terry. I don't want to hijack the um, podcast, but I'm happy (laughs) to do that as well. Because what we do know is that for women who are newly menopausal, there are a lot more benefits of the hormone therapy as opposed to risks. And as long as a woman is appropriately counseled, many women are okay with the idea of trying estrogen progestin or if they've had a hysterectomy, just estrogen alone treatment first to see if that helps. And the reason I prefer that approach is testosterone replacement is fraught with a lot more testing and follow-up. And although we have data about its effectiveness for sexual health, it has only really been studied for out to two years of safety versus, you know, menopausal estrogen progestin type therapies have been around close to 60 years, been studied for a long time. So I have a lot more safety track record with that and a lot less lab testing that a patient has to come in for. And it is an FDA approved treatment. So oftentimes I will start with that, especially if they're not sleeping well, they're having vaginal dryness, because I don't know how much of their sexual concerns are related to the fact that they're already feeling hot at night, they're getting disrupted sleep, they're tired during the day. And if they are open to the idea of postmenopausal hormone therapy, I'll start with that. And if they're not, I will offer one of the non-hormonal treatment options that you discussed with the premenopausal podcast, or directly talk about testosterone replacement. Well, I appreciate the comments about the estrogen because we know when we get out into the, our community, at least we a lot of the, the, the primary care want to start off treating menopause symptoms with the SSRIs and it's right. very common. And so I think to, to make that comment about needing to treat those symptoms, number one, but also the safety is, is so important. So I really appreciate you bringing that up because that still seems 20 years later to be an ongoing battle, isn't it? That we have to keep telling people that it's a, a safe medication to use the, the estrogen. So absolutely. And, you know, I have to be honest, you know, for, I did both primary care and my subspecialty practice for 15 years before just switching over just to the subspecialty side, just because, you know, it's hard to do primary care and subspecialty because access becomes really impossible. But I have fond respect for how difficult it is to try to manage so many different pieces and parts during a primary care visit. It was just so much easier to start off with an SSRI. Well, oh, you're also talking about menopausal symptoms. Well, while I'm trying to address all this other stuff, why don't you try this SSRI? I'll, you know, have you come back um, in a few, you know, few months. We'll see if this helps, and then we'll have the big hormone conversation if that's not helpful. And that certainly was a quick and easy way to do things. And I would imagine that's a quick and easy way for a lot of my GYN colleagues who are seeing a lot more patients per day in their GYN clinic than I am in my hormonal health, sexual health clinic, where I have a lot more time to discuss things. The downside of, I mean, that's a very uh, effective way to take care of the patient, but the problem is inevitably 
many patients that does help their symptoms, but then they're coming in next year with their libido concerns. And I was not very good about being honest about that. You know, I would say, well, sexual side effects are listed in the package insert. And I would say, you know, when I was busy in my primary care clinic, you know, but in my practice, it's not as pervasive as I hear about. If you could easily orgasm and you feel dead as a doorknob down there, let me know. Otherwise, if it's just taking you a few extra minutes to orgasm, and it's not bothering you, then that's fine. And now, you know, when I'm seeing a patient, I have the questionnaire and I know about all their sexual concerns and their menopausal concerns. I have all these moving pieces and parts in my brain. I do like to call out the pros and cons of each approach because people come in thinking that the hormones is going to be the riskier option. I say, all right, well, we can, you know, go simpler. We can do non-hormonal options, but, you know, there is a real concern about that making your um, sexual health symptoms worse. It doesn't necessarily in everybody, but you're telling me that, you know, your mood is pretty good and it really is these hot flashes and the sexual health symptoms. I'm nervous that if we just use the antidepressant, that this may not help your sexual health at all. In fact, there might be a worsening. So I'm very honest about that. And that sometimes sways their mind to maybe more seriously consider the hormone replacement option. You know, that brings me to another question, you know, in, especially in the premenopausal woman, people talk about that perhaps the majority of issues that are happening with sexual dysfunction are in the psychosocial category as opposed to the biologic category. In postmenopausal women, do you find most of the sexual issues are more rooted in the biological issues, or is there a lot of psychosocial problems? You know, I'm a big believer that people are very complex creatures and we try to simplify them into ICD-9 diagnoses <laughs> and DSM-4 criteria, but they really are not that simple. So I feel like things weave into each other, right? So you are a perimenopausal woman and previously you had a great sexual life. And all of a sudden, I know you've all, you guys have talked about atrophy in detail, but I do want to talk about that a little bit more since it's so pervasive. I mean, 50% of women are going to have some of that. So now all of a sudden you're having some pain and a vaginal dryness. And yes, you can use a cream, but it has this package insert that says you're going to get breast cancer from using this cream. And then now, you're worried, but also you're frustrated that you know something that was working so well for you. Now, all of a sudden you're experiencing this dryness and pins and needles, and now you're getting some pelvic floor dysfunction on top of that, right? Because you're tightening up the muscles. You don't know if it's going to be fun like it used to be or painful. And so now that sets the doubt in your mind of what's going on. I'm using this cream, but you know, the pelvic floor dysfunction is there now, right? Perhaps they've moved over to doing Zoom meetings on their kitchen table. So there's something screwed up with their ergonomics anyways. And now they have something separate and they're thinking, gosh, they told me this cream was going to work, but I'm still having some pain. And now you've got a lot of worries into your mind. And that, you know, creeps into your worries in the evening when you're trying to get some rest. So things are rarely perfect. And that's why I always say like doing sexual health is like peeling layers of an onion. And that's, I'm very honest with patients about that. I say each thing that we do may not make the perfect fit, but we're going to just try to take inches towards better. And as we make it inches towards better at the follow-up, I'm not going to be able to take care of everything today. That's why we're going to do a short course follow-up. And we're going to see now that the vaginal dryness, because I see the skin tissues have thinned, now that that's getting better with the cream, we'll see how much of that's helping the tight muscles underneath. 
underneath. And then we'll see as things get better, the libido is going to be the last thing to lift because we're going to have to get rid of some of this pain before you fully get your libido back. So hang in there, be patient with me while we work on the pelvic floor muscles with the stretching and the pelvic floor physical therapist. And we give this vaginal DHEA or estrogen the full time that it deserves. It needs at least 12 weeks to work. During that time, please don't be too upset about the libido. Don't be too hard on yourself because we're going to get there, but we're just going to need to take things one step at a time. And that's really my approach with counseling and how I view patients in terms of multifaceted picture that often surrounds sexual health. Say we have a patient that you've done some initial work and you're in a position where, you know, perhaps testosterone's a great option for her. You, in one of your recent publications, you said that only evidence-based indication for testosterone therapy is the treatment of hypoactive sexual desire disorder in postmenopausal women. Would you unpack that for us a little bit? You know, I talked about being humble, but uh, we also want to make sure we're practicing evidence-based care. So I do see testosterone touted for a lot of stuff around me. When I say around me, not necessarily at my institution. I'm one of the only people probably outside of a few endocrinologists and a few other in our women's health group that does testosterone replacement. But there's a lot of clinics out there where they say this is going to be for your workouts and for your well-being and for staying younger and healthier and all this stuff. So we really want to make sure that we we are not misrepresenting data that is not there. Do I have patients that go on testosterone therapy for sexual health and get other improvements there in those other facets of their life? Yes. Could that be placebo? Yes. Could that be benefits that we don't know about yet that are going to be studied in the future? Yes. But what I'm going to promote it for is for the um, sexual benefits. And I do make sure that I'm upfront about potential risks. So what, I'm, what I want to um, highlight in my counseling with patients is a, that it's only really studied for about two years, so we don't know long-term safety. B, that it's not been looked at in higher-risk women, so women who are high-risk for breast cancer or cardiovascular disease have typically been excluded from studies of testosterone, and those would be some of the women that we worry about more, just because remember, testosterone does convert into the estrogen in the system, and the more estrogen-deprived a woman is, I suspect the more readily that probably happens. And so depending on how much testosterone you're using, you may be bumping up some of the estrogen receptor activity as well. And then some of the other potential side effects, your goal is to always to get to physiologic dosing, right? We don't want to make women women super therapeutic. And so aiming for mid premenopausal levels of testosterone would be appropriate. And in those physiologic ranges, typically you're not going to get too much issues with like clitoromegaly or voice changes, right? However, you can get some acne and women always come in wanting their hormones leveled out. And I do have the honest conversation because they want their skin and hair to look perfect, but they also want the, you know, sex drive of their twenties. And I say, we're going to have to meet somewhere in the middle because all of our hormonal treatments for treating acne and hair aim to, you know, minimize androgen activity versus for sexual health, we're looking things to drive up androgen activity. So when I say that, it's like a light bulb in people's minds. They go, oh, okay. Because, you know, in each phase of the menstrual cycle, you might feel a different way, right? During uh, the high hormone, high ovulation time, you might feel very bloated and your skin may not look good, but you might also have a higher sex drive. Everybody's different, I realize. 
it's important for women to recognize that. So we're looking for a good mix, but not necessarily for everything to be perfect. And I think women will have more realistic outcomes that way. So typically acne can worsen. The guidelines say hair loss shouldn't worsen. I'm not sure I agree with that. With, you know, typically dermatologists are really looking at even tiny doses of spironolactone in women with normal testosterone level, which can actually help with hair loss. So I, I do counsel women that some thinning of the hair may occur. And I think that's been my experience anecdotally, even if the levels look good. But, you know, if you go super therapeutic, like for example, pellets and other things where you cannot, we do, I, I do not do pellets. The guidelines do not recommend pellets. And we see a lot of women in our endocrine and women's health clinics with women coming in with very high hormone levels from pellets. And those women can have, you know, I've seen a clitoris the size of an infant penis. We've seen lowering of the voice, which can be irreversible. Seen women growing lots and lots of hair. So you do have to be careful that you're not doing harm. So I am very honest about those side effects and the fact that they're going to need to come in for monitoring because even in my practice, I watch the levels like a hawk, but I have had women, you know, who get super therapeutic. Luckily, if you're watching them, you are not going to get anything where you don't recognize it right away. And it's never been male levels, but certainly, you know, when you're giving a transdermal formulation to a woman and sending her off, you're relying on them to A, use it as prescribed and B, to come back for the testing. And if that doesn't happen, they may become super therapeutic and they need to be aware of potential risks associated with that. Tell me about the dosing, uh, how you dose women with testosterone. Yeah, the dosing is complicated because we don't have an FDA approved way to do this. So we're all relying on the use of either the male FDA approved methods. And even though the guidelines say you shouldn't compound um, in all full disclosure and honesty, I do compound. So I'll talk to you about the dosing of both, but really the guidelines say stick to FDA approved regimens. And I'll tell you why they say that. It's an important reason because when you compound, there's another facet of human error that's introduced. And when I compound hormones, I do it only if I don't have an FDA approved way um, or there's some real intolerance. I'm very picky about my compounder. So I use our own compounder. And then for my out-of-state patients, I use another main tertiary care center who ships across the country. And the reason I use these only two compounders is because I have them on speed dial. If there's any issues, I can talk to them directly. They answer my calls. And, you know, they've been doing this for a long time. And despite that, you get issues with, you know, layering of medications and a change in formulation from the compounding manufacturer. And there are lots of layers of error and you really have to be very vigilant and follow up if you're doing any compounding. So oftentimes people will use the FDA approved formulation. And the most common one I'm going to use brand names is Testem. And the reason is because a lot of the other ones come in alcohol-based solutions. So it's hard to titrate because they drip out as opposed to the, uh, the gel formulation. And you have to tell the patient that it comes in tubes. So to get the formulation that looks like tubes and not ketchup packets, 
so when you get one box of the testum, it ends up, uh, they would, would go with like a good RX card or somewhere, somewhere where they're going to be self-pay. I found Costco's to be cheaper. Um, and so you're going to write on the prescription self-pay so that they're not going to try to put it through insurance and prior authorization. And they would just take it for one month's supply. The problem with doing it that way is that, that it comes in a third box of 30 tubes and that's close to one year supply. So that makes me a little nervous that I'm sending a patient out with a close to a one-year supply because we use one-tenth of the male dose. So that one tube should last them about 10 days. So that's approximately four drops per day, but that's difficult to do with just the tube. So what I do is I have patients pick up a five milliliter syringe and I give them in my EMR, I can put pictures into their after-visit summary. I put the pictures of the five milliliter syringe and where they can pick it up. And then, so they pull the contents of the tube into the five milliliter syringe, and then they have a 10 day supply in that. And then they use a half a milliliter per day, which I literally write out for the patient. It's halfway between the numbers at each day. So that helps to give them a nice one-tenth supply. And I start from there. That ends up being about five milligrams. And that's can be a little too much for some individuals. So that's why I also like compounding is because if that is too high of a dose and a patient has a hard time, you know, doing less with the syringe, I can compound, compound to a lesser concentration. And that way I do only, you know, one milligram per day and have them move up. And when I counsel women doing the testum syringe method, I say, make sure you close the cap to avoid evaporation because that can make the testosterone more concentrated. Tell them to keep it at room temperature. And these topical preparations are applied to a skin surface that uh, many providers will say calf or upper outer thigh. And these are areas that they can shave if there's some hair growth there. You want to wait at least an hour after shaving. Some people have patients put it on the butt but again, I'm nervous if there's any hair growth in places. I don't want to leave them with terminal hairs that are they're stuck uh, having to shave later. Now, for years, I have had patients apply to the vulva. I have had good experience with that. I do think you get some more variation in the absorption sometimes if they're mixing the area, uh, if they're uh, changing where they put it on the vulva. But I have not had any uh, clitoral enlargement or anything like that doing it that way. But that is always a risk. And I do counsel them that if you're going to use it on the vulva, the nice thing about putting in the vulva, it's an area that has hair. And if somebody has really a lot of atrophy of their clitoral size, let's say they had lichen sclerosis or they were on a birth control pill for 30 years of their life or they're very atrophied and the clitoral size is small, I do find that putting it on the prepuce can actually help with the clitoral enlargement and sometimes the orgasm function. And Terry, I'd be curious as to, you know, your way, because honestly, these are all anecdotal methods, unfortunately, and we don't have good RCT evidence to guide us how to do this. So I'm always curious what my colleagues are doing and what's worked for them as well. I use the testum. I, I think that's uh, something that our colleague, Jim Simon, always teaches. And I've, you know, kind of used his uh, recommendation. And also we have a compounding pharmacy here. And a lot of times it's it really all depends on cost. <laughs> for me, I just, I'll start one place. And if they call back and say, boy, I can't, I can't afford that then 
a lot of times that in this area that the compounding pharmacies are much cheaper. So I'm I'm at the the, the mercy of cost myself. But well, um, with the good RX card and the testem, you are essentially getting a one year supply, close to one year supply. It's a three hundred day supply. It's ten months rather. So when you think of it in that perspective, but that is what makes me nervous because I have to warn the audience that, you know, before the guidelines came out, I was doing the, you know, test um, as recommended, you know, as discussed at our society meetings and such because it's FDA approved. And I had a patient who didn't come back until the year after, even though I counseled her, you need to come back for the level because we typically have to check the level about a month after, sometime between three to six weeks after using it. I have them come in for a lab. And that's what the guidelines recommend. Or anytime we change a dose, I have them come back. Because again, you don't want to make these women super therapeutic. And I had a woman that she either she forgot and and it was she was feeling great on it. She basically was self-treating higher and higher doses. So I did not see her back until a year later at the time of her yearly visit when she was asking for a refill on the testum. And that's the lady that had, you know, significant clitoral enlargement. She had hair thinning. She had no self-awareness of the problem. Problem, though. I mean, she had male hormone levels and I felt terrible as a prescriber, but she was like, I couldn't trust her anymore, right? To give her a close to a year supply. She was like, but the orgasms are so great. And that's when I really started compounding. When I compound, it's 1% testosterone and they do about a, you know, one to three months supply, depending on how, you know, where I am in the uh, monitoring process. And that one, at least I can dole out slowly because technically testosterone is a controlled substance. So you're not supposed to be able to prescribe more than six months at a time. And so with the compounding pharmacy, they will follow those rules versus with the test them, you know, you've given them a, a 300 day supply. So just you you know, word to the wise. I was going to ask how you monitor. Do you use uh, free testosterone? Do you use total testosterone levels? How do you, what, what do you use? What blood test do you use to monitor? Yeah, it's not a cost-effective care the way I do it. The, the guidelines say you could just use total testosterone because we don't have good evidence that the free testosterone is biologically active, which is fine. If somebody has been you know, well-controlled for years and years, um, I have no problem using the total testosterone because it's probably going to be cheaper. But initially, I do use the ultra-sensitive assays that look at sex hormone binding globulin, total free level. Because, you know, if especially if I'm starting them on estrogen, that SHBG might fluctuate. If they're gaining a lot of weight, losing weight, the SHBG might fluctuate. That may impact, you know, free total levels. So I do, especially, I, I'm just very risk adverse. So I do like to look at the whole picture. And the, another problem I want to call out for the audience is I don't check hormones unless I really, they're going to help guide my clinical care. And if they're, if they're going to help guide my clinical care, I want accurate hormone levels. So for estrogen and testosterone, I do the mass spectrometry uh, chromatography assays as opposed to immunoassays. The immunoassays are a quick, fast turnaround. They're probably a little cheaper at most labs, but you have to really be careful. Supplements and things can impact their levels. It can be confusing. So I check the more ultra-sensitive assay 
because you know testosterone low assays are meant to check high male levels so when we're checking children or women the levels are lower and so most institutions have a child female assay and if you don't call your friendly pathology team and talk to them the assays that i use take several weeks to come back some are send out some are not however i feel more confident that in my results that way and i tell women to avoid any supplements for at least three days before. I've had conversations with our lab directors. We're seeing all kinds of different supplements interfere uh, with the lab assays for these hormone tests, including, including thyroid. Vitamins? Include, oh, yep. Biotin is a notorious one. Um, so I, I say, if it's not prescription, stop it. No herbs, no supplements three days before. I'm very specific about like, for example, if I'm checking prolactin levels, I'll tell them no sexual activity, including breast stimulation, nipple stimulation for three days before. Because if you're checking hormone levels and you're digging patients' pocketbooks or the system's pocketbook, we want to make sure we're getting accurate assessment. Uh, that's, a, that's a great discussion on androgens for our postmenopausal women. Any any final pearls for treating sexual health issues in the postmenopausal woman? And this is not specifically for hormones. The one thing is I do like vaginal DHEA because there's a study that shows it hits all six domains of sexuality, including libido. And so I think vaginal DHEA is a hidden gem if um, people can afford it, even though it hasn't been studied or you know, compared directly to estrogen. But my one big clinical pearl is really to listen to the whole patient. And I really like to drive home the concept that a responsive desire in long, healthy, long-term relationships is completely normal. Because if, if the goal is to reach for only spontaneous desire all the time, then, you know, we're going to be using high, high doses. We're going to have people on lots of hormones, lots of medications, and people don't realize that, you know, if you may not be interested in sex because right now you've got a lot of things on your mind and, you know, you're kind of in a busy, hurry day and your partner is interested and yes, you really didn't want to initially, but just you're kind of doing duty sex. That's kind of the mindset because it's important for the relationship. It's important for your partner. And, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes into it, now you're getting into it and you have a healthy orgasm or you may even not. You enjoyed it and you think, gee, why don't I want to do this more often? That's healthy, intact, responsive desire considered absolutely normal in the sexual health world. Our patients have no idea that that's normal. And normalizing that is probably one of the most important therapeutics that I have in my pocket, more than testosterone or phlebanserin or anything else. So talking to your patient, setting realistic expectations, creating what is normal, giving them books about what's normal, what's not, is so critical to help any sexual medicine prescriber get their patients across the therapeutic finish line. Well, I thank you for taking out the time. What an excellent review this was in uh, sexual medicine for the postmenopausal woman. Thank you again. And thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sex Ed for Sex Med. Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.